just think about it for a moment. Your conscious mind is literally 5% of your total brain processing. So if I'm going in there and I think I'm going to get the best result only accessing 5% of what I've got upstairs, I'm kind of setting myself up not to get the best result. So if I set that clear, coherent intention and I engage the subconscious, I engage the other 95%, well, that can be working away at solving the problem for me. That was Scott Robinson. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, Simply Faster. There are a lot of sports technology companies out there, but Simply Faster is the only website you can go to that features an online store that covers the bandwidth of training technology, from force plates to timing systems to muscle simulators and more. Some products of Simply Faster that I use and love include things like the Freelap Timing System in KBox or coaches' favorites such as GymAware. Recently, Simply Faster has added two units that, as a coach, you should definitely take a look at. The first is the Muscle Lab Contact Grid, which is an extremely affordable and portable step-by-step, literally, system to collect data on jumps, bounds, sprints, agility, hurdle hops, and really as much as your creative mind can imagine. In what used to take a whole runway worth of data collecting strips, the Contact Grid does it all with only two small strips that together cover up to 40 meters of sprinting. Ground contact time, step rates, rhythms, and beyond are at your fingertips with this device. Another new unit, the VO2 Master, is an ultra-portable gas exchange analyzer. Don't guess on energy system development when you can get direct insight into VO2 capabilities in relation to specific sports skills, rather than being hooked up to tubes on a treadmill or worse yet, a cycle ergometer to get a VO2 max. Think of the VO2 Master as your own gas exchange lab without the tubes and wires. Deepen your analysis in the specific conditioning preparation of your athletes with the VO2 Master today. These products and incredible customer service make Simply Faster your go-to for your sports technology needs. I'm happy to have partnered with them in sponsoring this podcast. Their support has been tremendous, so check them out today at simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. The brain and the nervous system is the ultimate controller of our performance outcomes. As much as we need to study exercise techniques and biomechanics, uh, we also need to spend plenty of time understanding Uh, brain chemistry and reward systems and intention and everything that makes all those exercises tick. We've had some awesome coaches on the show in the past speaking in depth on the brain and the nervous system and the the subconscious mind. And I really enjoy doing these shows. I really enjoy being able to uh, hit the angles of athletic performance from many perspectives. Today's show is a repeat guest, uh, Scott Robinson. We had him on on episode 188. Uh, a fantastic talk on elements of the brain, the nervous system, and specifically our belief systems and our emotional history and how that plays into our performance outcomes, be it a positive or driving force or a negative force driving us away from our goals. He also talked about our fascial system. And on the tail end of the show, he talked about how to optimize a training session by inducing uh, novel means, novel games in the warmup to really drive intention and attention and how we can utilize those. That was a really beneficial element for me and my warm-ups and the way I've approached a lot of the, the front end of training sessions has been massively impacted by the information that Scott left on the last show. Briefly, before we get started, I'd like to get to Scott's bio. Uh, Scott is an applied movement neurology master practitioner and has over 20 uh, years of experience in applied movement neurology. He is a consultant. He has many years of experience in personal training, and he is a former Taekwondo athlete. Scott has worked successfully with all levels of neurological complexity in his time training and coaching a wide variety of clients. On the podcast today, Scott is going to get into ideas of a neurological checklist that an athlete could use in the midst of their training or competition to make sure that their athletic ship is steered in the right direction, that they have all systems and belief systems working towards that common goal. He also is going to get a lot into dopamine and reward systems in training and performance and how coaches can really dial into how to get an athlete's nervous system fully and outputs fully invested in that direction of training by modulating rewards. And that fits in with some things that we've seen other coaches doing on the podcast previously and also just gets into the art of being a great coach. Finally, Scott is going to talk about intention setting in coaching and athletics. We talk so much about intention and a sense of urgency. Knowing a little bit more about the fine details of that is just massive. I can tell you since the show, I've been using Scott's ideas and thoughts on that intention setting, and it has been so helpful. 
This is one of those shows that both has the science end and just so much practicality as well. So it's going to be useful for you, whether you're a, a coach, an athlete, a sports parent, wherever you're at, this, uh, this episode was awesome. I really like talking to Scott. He has so much to offer and just helps us so much to build that holistic perspective when we're working with athletes. So that being said, let's get onto the podcast with Scott Robinson. Scott, last time uh, we were on the show, we spoke a lot on, and this was at the end of the show, and I feel like this could have been a, a, a much bigger show, but the idea of attention and urgency and alertness in training and using novelty to really improve an athlete's um, real presence in the training to, to help them focus and, and dial in. And you had talked about games last time, but I wanted to ask you this time more on uh, maybe just other elements on how do you really get in the present moment in training? And then we could perhaps talk about that outside of training as well, because I'm sure they're not too far apart. So anyway, sorry if I kind of threw a, uh, I tend to ask more than one question at once, but if we just start <laughs> with present, present moment in training, I, I'd love to talk about and explore that. Yeah, perfect. Okay. And look, hey, last night was a good conversation last time. It did feel like there was still quite a bit more ground to cover. So I'm, I'm grateful to be back and on track again and, and hopefully starting to cover some of that ground. But yes, present moment awareness is a powerful thing. And the mind, I think it's just really, when we touched on this last time, the mind wants to run on autopilot. And, and again, we, we covered this, if anybody remembers it, that basically survival is the brain's number one priority. And so it's constantly looking to try and optimize its, its energy usage. It's looking to try and maximize its energy efficiency because it knows that if it runs automated programs, it's going to expend less energy than if it is calculating every single moment. And if it's running those, if it's running those automated programs, then it's going to give itself more time. It's going to have more time available to go out and hunt and find food and refuel and then continue to survive to survive so your brain's constantly trying to run that autopilot constantly trying to switch off now when the autopilot's running what the brain is doing is essentially it's just trying to predict it's trying to predict everything about its environment everything that's potentially around the corner it's trying to predict where the dangers might be it's trying to predict what your experience of life is going to be so that it can have it can have a prefabricated response it can have a a response already set up and ready to ready to go and it can just hit execute on an automated program so and that costs the brain a whole lot less energy than trying to calculate in every single moment exactly what it needs and so essentially it's exactly the same with sport when we're if we're in present moment awareness then we can actually be calculating and we can be computing we can be working out we can be optimizing things and we can be working out exactly what it is that we need now if we're talking about energy efficiency a lot of times there are a huge number of processes that it actually really serves us to have automated because you think if you're expending extra energy, if you're chewing through extra energy in the brain while you're in competition, well, that has a cost to it. And so, yeah, you want to have you want to have set up the very best, the most optimal programs to be running in your mind so that you can be running efficiently, expending less energy, but running on the best programs. So I think the time to work on this stuff is definitely while you're in training. And it's definitely while you're in training in practice and you can be building and creating those, those optimal programs. The thing to remember, and I think this is, it's just, a, it's a really, really simple concept, but the brain, if you try and attempt a new movement, if you're trying to learn a new skill, and if the, the first thing the brain will do is it will search its data bank, it'll search memory and experience, and it'll look for, it'll look for relevant data. And when it happens on, when it finds some relevant data, and it might collect that from a number of different memories, a number of different experiences, but when it finds some relevant data and it believes it can put together it can put together a program from memory and experience, then that may not be the output that you're looking for. It may not be the movement pattern. It might not be exactly what is optimal, but it's what the brain can do most easily without actually having to sort of compute and calculate in that precise moment. So I'll segue to a, an anecdote. So I like to play table tennis in my backyard. And I just, it's hand-eye coordination. It's a bit of fun. I use it for a bit of a warm-up before I'll go and train. And I'll put the backboard up and just hit against the backboard. And one really simple drill is I, I was told once that a lot of professionals will just hit 100 shots. Just that's your baseline, hit 100 shots. And then once you've done that, then you can get on with some other skill work or whatever it is you're going to do in training. One particular day, and I would say for me, it might, it might take me a few times to get that, but I can normally do 100 shots. But one particular day, I was absolutely terrible. 
I was just it was a it was a terrible day in training and like the output was just was was a long way short of where it should be and I couldn't I couldn't even get past 10 I just kept making errors kept making mistakes now for whatever reason my system was just not firing appropriately and so what I essentially what what I did was apply my own work to that situation what my system actually wanted in that moment was the visual stream pathways in wanted wanted calibration so I had to work with my with my visual circuitry. Then I had to work with my cerebellum, and I had to do some calibration there to try and get get coordination firing on the on an appropriate level. But the very next thing that came up was a belief, and the next thing my system indicated that it wanted was a new belief. And the belief was something along the lines of, "The ball always goes exactly where I intend to place it, or I plan to place it, or I plan for it to go." And which is it? Which is a child's language, which is essentially how the subconscious mind works and thinks. But that's kind of a child's language for saying that my brain pays attention and it corrects the errors. And so instead of my brain just running on whatever program it was running in that moment where it wasn't paying attention, I just put in a new belief that got the brain paying attention and it just started correcting errors straight away in the moment. And the very next repetition, the very next attempt that I made went from not being able to get 10 repetitions to doing 289 repetitions. So the output was incredibly different. I think it was incredibly different. but I guess that the, the message is that I got the brain to be present, got the brain to pay attention. So it began to pay attention to the errors and it was correcting them. Whereas previously it was just, it was accepting that those errors were okay and allowable within the program that it was running. So it was accepting that, that there was nothing to correct or that there was, it, there was nothing that it needed to change or pay attention to. It was just running a less than optimal or a less desirable program in that moment. And then when I changed the program, and gave the circuitry a little bit of help as well. But when I changed the focus and got the brain to actually acknowledge the errors and correct, there was a very, very different result. And that, to me, that's, that's your present moment awareness. And we, and we can run programs for that, but actually paying attention in the moment rather than just uh, going with what the brain decides is best from its collection of, of memory and experience can give us a very different result. That's awesome. I, it makes me think about when I was growing up, playing uh, like basketball, which I went completely the wrong way about things to be a great basketball player because most of my time spent was just shooting around by myself with no competition and no novel situations to have to react to. And I think a lot of that was my ego or just wanting to do things on my own. <laughs> but even within that shooting around by myself, a lot of it would be you would read, okay, well, you need to shoot from these stations and make 10 out of 10 shots and write them, write it down and a lot of it was just or shooting 10 out of 10 free throws or something like that. And a lot of times if like I wasn't shooting well and that stuff, I mean, of course, as a young athlete, like who, unless you have someone coaching you or helping you, I mean, I, I don't think it's the norm at all to question yourself in that way. But usually it's just oh, I only made seven, get frustrated. I hope I make the more next the next time. I'll just keep doing this till hopefully I get it. But no one pays attention to maybe why <laughs> or what changed when you made three and what you made when you made 10 or anything like that. And I think that a lot of times, maybe it's just a generality too, but I think we tend to live in more of the concrete domain so often. Like, like it's just that. It's how many did you make? How much weight did you lift? How far was that set of bounds or something like that? And we, we don't as readily get into, well, what was it that made that, that set better? Mm. Especially too with the sports skill. And I think that's where yeah, I, I've I've been finding that more and more interesting as I go throughout my own when I'm just playing uh, games for fun, like playing my brother in tennis, and I'm winning right away. But then I start losing, and I'm like, why am I losing? I just like to me, it's not even getting frustrated with not playing well. It's just trying to understand my body and my brain, and what mm -hmm. what happened that this is happening, you know, and just in taking that for what it is. So I think it's really interesting the idea of not just not just looking at numbers, but the why behind numbers. And I'm sure if we approach tra training sessions like that, be it skill or even just output and strength, I think there's, in any situation, there's definitely something to glean from that in going more the how and the why. Mm. Can I say, so, so going, jumping back into that present moment awareness where you were actually able to get that information on that how, the where, and the why. So I guess what, one way to look at it is it's kind of a little bit like reverse engineering anxiety. The brain absolutely hates an open loop. It, it, it hates loops that are unclosed. So if you are, and you ask anybody who's dealing, who's dealing with OCD or with anxiety and has those, those mental health patterns, 
If you ask them, they'll tell you about ruminating thought and just these thoughts going round and round in their head and they just don't switch off. And so as an athlete or in anything in life, you can kind of reverse engineer that. You can use that by asking really, really poignant, really targeted, pertinent questions. So if you ask powerful questions, you can create an open loop that the brain will just get to work on solving for you. So when you're doing your free, free throws and you're shooting seven out of 10, and if that's, you know, if you normally hit nine out of 10, but one day you're hitting seven, you might be asking yourself the question. So what am I doing here? What's different? What's changed? You know, why, you know, why is my output not matching the expectation of my regular nine? You know, I can, I can ask some, some targeted questions like that and I can just get my brain paying attention. Now, the other thing we can do on the flip side of that is draw, really draw attention to when you get it right. And so in sport, I, I like the example of looking at tennis players because tennis players are really great on their celebrations. You hear some big mm-hmm. come-ons, you'll see a lot of fist pumps and a lot of athletes do it. But you know, tennis is one of those ones that's oh, kind of yeah. right out there. Yeah, I, I used to compete in Taekwondo. And so we, you know, we used to have a lot of fun, you know, with our, with our celebrations when you'd hit somebody. Um, there's a lot of screaming, a lot of yelling, a lot of fist pumping. But what you're actually doing in a really emotional and visceral way is you're drawing your nervous system's attention, you're drawing the brain's attention to uh, an optimal output or a desirable mm-hmm. output. And so what you, you can do is you can actually use language on that. You know, you can you can celebrate with a fist pump. But again, exactly what we talked about last time, you want to make it novel. You want to, you need to create attention. So if you just do a fist pump all the time and that just becomes your regular celebration, well, perhaps you're not, you're not creating the greatest level of attention on that moment by just doing your regular fist pump. So if you're trying to learn a new skill or you're trying to, you know, you're literally trying to create a new output or you know, a new higher level output, when you get it right, yes, you want to celebrate. You potentially also want to make the statement to yourself and say, like, to me, I would say, yes, that one, that's what I want. That's what you want to see. Well done, Scott. Great work, Scott. Whatever, whatever it is that you, you know, however, whatever the languages that you would use to talk to yourself. And so, I, again, going back to my table tennis in the backyard, I've done that there. I've given this drill to athletes and whatnot before. But when you get it right, use that language. And so you're, you're learning a new skill. And then when you actually see the output, attention doesn't have to be precisely in that moment for it to have an effect. So uh, what I mean by that is if I'm hitting a, if I'm trying to work on my forehand and I actually get it right, yes, I have to be paying attention to hand-eye coordination. I've got to be paying attention to where the ball is and where I want it to go. But I can place my attention on that moment immediately afterwards. So when I'm no longer in that moment, I can look back at that moment as it just happened and I can place my attention on it. And I consciously might not be able to break down exactly what happened in the neuromuscular system and, and, and in the brain as to what's, what's actually fired off to, to create that correct output. But I can make the statement, my subconscious mind knows, my body knows exactly what's just happened and I can create the statement and I can celebrate and pat myself on the back and tell my, my system, yes, pay attention to that, that one. Let's do that one again. And, and actually put the statement in. It sounds like a strange thing, but it really works. So you're literally creating that attention and it's a really cool idea to remember that you don't actually have to have your attention placed perfectly in that present moment. You can, you can connect with the moment that you just created shortly afterwards. So you can actually, you can actually be present in the past, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm, I have a lot of thoughts. One of the thoughts that I'm really getting into, and I, I worked with tennis on the at least strength and conditioning level for seven years. And one of the things that I really noticed was the the celebrations those athletes did were much more almost I always thought it kind of on a level like it was like this it's a really tense you know mental game tennis and you don't get to uh, what's the word I'm trying to say like you don't have physical contact to kind of diffuse the tension from playing it's just mm. you and yourself and it's all fine-tuned and those athletes were very very intense and I felt like I in my mind I just thought that well that's the way to go and you can't hit somebody like football <laughs> you know you're, and, and maybe to a small degree but what you're saying definitely that absolutely makes sense to me because I've thought I thought about that a lot with those athletes and watching their matches and just how intense and emotional those celebrations would often be and they weren't always the same one a lot of times they were different mm-hmm. or they always were had a different subtlety to them and I guess it makes sense uh, with Taekwondo as well. I, I, I mean, would you agree with that though? Or, or I guess like tennis and Taekwondo versus other sports, like just sports where the mental focus, and not like it's 
just you know those sports only all sports require mental focus but something about the individual sports where it's just so fine-tuned and fast and and individual maybe those sports are more likely to require those or i mean or should should other athletes i guess be doing that too i i'm just trying to sorry i'm just trying to put all that together i just think it's a really powerful and interesting thing having experienced it myself watching tennis players over all those years yeah, I think there's there's an emotional release. I think there's a, and I think probably what you're saying because you don't get to stand and hit somebody, um, <laughs> you know, there's probably there's more of an emotional release when that point is over and you've hit the winner, you've, you've executed, you've done exactly what you what you plan what you planned for. Um, but also there's the elation, there's the elation of victory, there's that momentary victory that you've created. So there's an there's an emotion there, and yeah, and I think you want to harness that, you know, and I think and that's the thing. So when we talk about neuroplasticity. You you need there's attention, attention, urgency, and alertness. They're the three keys for for, for neuroplastic change. So that's what's going to that's what going to what is going to create the chemical environment in the brain to be able to form new synaptic connections and uh, and so the brain can actually remodel and, and and optimize itself. So and we talked about that last time you know, using using games in in warm up and to create that no, that novel stimulus. But exactly like we said, you can do that by having a consequence. So when you're talking about your free throws and you're saying you know, if I'm, I need to shoot a certain number, I'm putting a little bit of pressure. I'm putting some urgency on the situation, which means I have to then pay more attention. I can't just go in and just, you know, toss the ball up and hope for the best because that's not going to give me my best chance to get that particular score. And I have created an urgency around that. And there's the same sort of, there's, there's exactly the same thing going on with that level, that level of heightened alertness. Obviously, when you're in competition, you're adding emotion to it. And we look at emotion like a fuel source. So, you, you can have all of those key factors set up, attention, urgency, and alertness, but you add emotion to things and it's like a fuel source. It's like it supercharges the moment and just makes it more intense, which I think most athletes who've been in those kinds of situations will probably agree with that, you know, a, you know, a big championship point, you know, a, a big competition, it definitely feels like there's more emotion there or it feels like there's a far greater emotional release. Um, and when that's happening, then the brain, again, the brain's paying more attention. It's like it's, that, that moment is kind of, is, is kind of supercharged. So yes, you can absolutely harness emotion in that moment, and I would definitely agree that in those sports where there's 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 a build up, you know, and certainly that's what you used to experience in taekwondo. There's, you know, it's it would be tense, and it could be a it's a bit like a little bit like fencing, you know, it's a it's it's all very cagey. But then when you finally commit and explode to, to try and create that point, and it comes off, well, yeah, there's some real there's some real elation there in in that moment, absolutely. And so yeah, definitely there's there's a whole heap of emotion which as we're just touching on, you can potentially, you can potentially harness and you can kind of recreate that same sort of thing in training. And a, and a lot of athletes will do that via, you know, by running scenarios in, in training, you know, scenarios to try and create the, the game day situation or the match, the match situation where there is a consequence. And again, when you're doing that, when you're creating that consequence, you're creating urgency, you're, you're creating the, the chemical environment for neuroplasticity in the, in, in the brain. And if you're trying to work on new, new patterns or new mental states or whatever it is, you can be, creating the neural connections that can support that and so they're all just they're important things to pay attention to if you're trying to uh, in training you're trying to set yourself up to get the very best result it makes me think about it's very common for strength and conditioning coaches to be always on their athletes about having a sense of urgency and i feel like it's that's absolutely true having that mentality but i also think about the idea that you can also you can create that not just by you know being on your players all the time about that but by having things that have like outcomes and ga- you know a, a gamifying training or if you're doing a lift and there's like a bar speed and there's a competition or something like that or a- anything like that any uh, you can players should ideally be able to uh, manufacture that on their own but when you were talking about the celebration it's interesting my kids are they're three and four and they're learning to swim and my daughter when she was uh just a few weeks ago she was just starting to make it on her own and do a few strokes and every time she did she would say celebration and she would like throw water in the air <laughs> like i didn't tell her to do that <laughs> she just so we did it every time she made it to me you know no matter either or even if she didn't she would we would, we would kind of celebrate anyway <laughs> she would still uh just want to do it but then i was i was thinking well if she didn't i was trying to be reinforcing no matter what but she she came up with that idea and i just i guess maybe that's hardwired in us at least on some level to to celebrate the the things that we do well and when we when we get it together that's that's child genius in action no so what you're seeing there is 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 amazing and definitely like to be encouraged so what she's doing 
she's creating a, she she is executing a desired output you know she's she's making her strokes and then she jumps up and says celebration what she's doing in that moment she's giving herself dopamine so mm-hmm. and dopamine is one of the neurotransmitters that we need for neuroplasticity so she's allowing herself by having that dopamine she's uh, allowing herself to be present in the moment and hold attention on what she just did and then her system's looking at it so think of it from the subconscious mind's perspective and like we said, the subconscious mind, it's like a child's mind. It's like a little kid. And when we, the, the reason why we say that is because it doesn't think critically. It doesn't debate. It doesn't argue. It knows if you've made a change. It knows if something's happened. It knows what program it's just executed. It knows what, it knows what programs it's running. But when it does something and then it knows it executes an action or it makes a change of some kind and, or it's trying to figure something out, like your daughter's trying, trying to swim, the teacher's demonstrated demonstrated the swimming stroke her little brain mirror neurons are firing off in her little brain trying to put a motor pattern together and and then recreate the movement that she's just seen then she goes and does it she doesn't know if she's got it right or if she's got it wrong one feedback is if she makes it to dad another feedback is if she sticks her head up and the teacher just says that was amazing you did that perfectly whatever the feedback is that tells her that she just executed that plan right that her brain just got it right what she's doing by doing the celebration, she releases dopamine and then her, her brain looks at that situation and goes, oh, that, that, right, that one. And the subconscious mind essentially is looking at that and saying, oh, you like that? Okay, I'm getting a reward. Okay, well, look, if you like that, it's plenty more where that came from. I can do that again. So then the subconscious is saying, right, well, if we, if we run that program, we can get more dopamine. But let's just run that program again. That, that looks like that's the right one. So that's genius that you know your little girl's come up with that on, on on her own wherever she's got that from that's brilliant but anybody can use that and and that's exactly what we're talking about with those celebrations in the moment you know you celebrate having ha- having made the right shot or having created you know the new pattern that you were looking to create or if you're talking about strength and conditioning if you're by creating the level of intensity that level of intensity and focus that you're looking to create if you celebrate that, then you're, you're telling your mind like, okay, whatever combination of factors you just put together to get me in the zone, get me in the moment, that, that was good. That was right. That worked for us. Let's do that one again. And, and I think it's a really, really cool and just important consideration to, I guess, to be aware of is something I'm always saying. And there's a lot of strength in like the traditional strength and conditioning thinking kind of looks at things differently. We, we always look at neuromuscular output and we say we build strength. You get in the gym and you build strength and you do that over time and volume and time and tension and you, you just keep pushing tin and keep st- stacking more weight on and you get stronger and that, and that makes sense. But I'm always saying to people, you don't build strength. It's your nervous system grants you strength. Mm. And that's exactly what you're just describing there when you're saying that you know, strength and conditioning coaches are always trying to get their athletes and say, stay in the moment. I need, I need intensity. I need focus. I need you to be switched on because what they're actually saying is you need to try and find a way to get 100% of your nervous system in on board and engaged for this, you know? And, and if you can do that, if you can get everything in your nervous system firing, you're automatically going to find you've got way more strength. So Part one way to go about that is every time you get it right, you can celebrate, you can draw attention to when you've done that successfully and you can refine that over time. But having your nervous system in, in my world, I would say having your nervous system calibrated or having, you know, emotions regulated and just having your system firing and communicating appropriately such that it can produce those, those kinds of, um, that kind of output is absolutely key. Because if you actually have access to 100% of the nervous system, well, then you can see maximal strength. If you, for whatever reason, if it's because there are emotions in the system, if it's because there are pathogens in the system, if it's because there's something in your environment, might be non-native electromagnetic fields, it might be that you're just reacting to, you know, to the Wi-Fi in the place. And, th- and that's the thing. We can demonstrate that really easily, really effectively. It might be that your, your system's just not coping with the 3G, 4G or 5G. It, all of those things have an effect on us. And if for whatever reason, we're not able to access 100% of, of, of the nervous system output, well, then our physical output is going to be less and we might just be left scratching our head as to why. But that celebration process is just is a really simple and really easy way for people to go about refining it because you're, you're telling your system when it's actually gotten it right. I wanted to take a break from the show and briefly share with you the difference that performance herbalism can make for you. Several years ago, I had Logan Christopher, CEO of Lost Empire Herbs, on the show to talk about hypnosis and mental training for athletes. 
While talking to him, I realized he also had an herbalism company. So shortly thereafter, I used the Phoenix formula, which was my first product I bought from them. I had great results with it, not only increasing my energy and decreasing my need for coffee and caffeine, but I also noticed that it was making an impact on my lifts and my weight room numbers. I was having a great training experience. Shortly thereafter, I also got into the Shiliagit resin as well as other herbs. And I don't look at supplementation the same way. I'm a strong believer in what Logan and his company are doing in looking for a natural resource to boost human performance. If you want to check out the herbs that I use personally from Lost Empire Herbs, you can head to www.lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. There you can get 15% off your order and they offer a 365 day money back guarantee. Definitely check them out. Let's get on back to the show. Yeah, I, it makes me think of, as you were talking, kind of a lot of connections were starting to form. And I, I think about some practices that I've seen other coaches do that would definitely be in that uh, celebration process category. And I think that, like you said, like we want to unlock the fullness of the nervous system. And I think that unless it would be foolish to think that we can't get that without like getting the emotions Mm. into it, like we need to Mm. engage the whole being. And I think about, uh, I've seen this like in, I was going to say one other thing too, uh, because I wanted to ask, well, I'll I'll put this on the tail end maybe of things, but (laughs) I've seen things like, um, I almost feel like you could consider a celebration on some level. Uh, like I know Tony Holler, a sprint coach here in the United States, does like a rank record and publish where they'll do their sprints, their 40-yard dash or 10-meter fly, and then they'll they'll rank it and they, it gets sent out. And for the people who improved and the people who are at the top, like to them, like what a dopamine reinforcement, you know, like you mm. you you improved. And I don't know exactly how he does it, but I know that culture uh, it just – and Tony talks a lot about do- dopamine. So it's almost like – I'm thinking now, it's like, how can I set myself up to maximally reward athletes? And I think sometimes, especially here in the United States, but probably across the world, just in general, I don't think we stop and celebrate life enough or reward ourselves enough, sport or any, you know, anything. But I was thinking about like in the weight room, there'll be like a PR bell and some people might get annoyed by it. But I think it's, you set a PR, you ring the bell, you know, you're, you're, mm-hmm. you're celebrating what you just did. And I'm sure if people didn't like the loud PR bell, there could be something else you could do or there's like a belt given out for like the best, you know, the best person who trained the best that week, you get like a big, like wrestling style belt or anything like that, you know, anything that can celebrate what was done or just writing your name on the board. And there's a record board and you get to write your name or, or anything that gives an athlete an opportunity to celebrate either, either physically or um, through recognition, what they did, I I think is really important to just kind of keeping that, the emotional uh, part inside or going as well as just more than just the physical level of it. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then to me, the real nous in, in coaching is that is understanding that you can build that response in your athlete, understand that you can, you can build in that dopamine response. You're going to, and via celebration, you're going to increase the amount of attention that is going on in that moment. And the, the system is going to optimize itself. So you can refine it further and you can, you can apply some of that real subtle coaching now and you can you can change it up and go to intermittent reward. So once you've built that reward in, so once the athlete knows that if I produce a certain level of output, if I produce a, you know, a good performance, however it is that I contextualize that, I'm going to get a reward. I'm going to get put up on a video. I'm going to be sent out to thousands or I'm just going to get a pat on the back or whatever it is that I get, I'm going to get a reward. If you then switch it up and then hold that reward back, that reward is not forthcoming every so often, then that athlete's brain or that particular brain is just going to look at that and say, well, hang on a minute. I, I was, well, the brain was anticipating a dopamine hit, but the brain was certain there was dopamine coming and then it wasn't forthcoming in that moment. And so then the response will be that oh, I, I need to go harder. I need to, I, I need to adjust this. Something must have, there must have been something off with the performance. I need to, uh, I need to increase the output even further. And so you, you can optimize your response even further via intermittent reward. And, so we're saying this is something that the casinos are really well and truly on top of. So the casinos know that people get huge dopamine hits when they get a win, but the brain also receives dopamine for a near win. Hmm. And for people who deal with gambling addictions, that's too much. The dopamine that they receive for a near win is pretty much the same. It's about the same as a, their, their brains can't tell the difference between a win and a near win or a win and, and a near miss. So they're still getting dopamine and getting rewarded for that, which then makes them continue to ante up and put more money in and more money in and, you know, and then that's, that's quite problematic. 
yourself and myself, we can still experience that. We can still experience a level of dopamine there, but we it's not so much that we can't apply sensibility and reason and understand that we're losing money and then after three or four losses say, that, that's it, I'm, I'm done. This is not fun anymore, I'm out. Um, but you can use that, you can apply that to athletes. You can literally just, you can you can withhold the celebration, you can withhold the reward and then that brain will look at the will look to attempt to solve that problem. The problem being that it didn't get its reward by giving more, by by increasing the output even further. So reward is fantastic, but it can be even more powerful once you actually when you give the reward only every so often. And I think most people are kind of aware of that, but it's 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 actually really interesting just to understand what's going on in the brain when we're when that's happening. Yeah, that that actually kind of um makes me think more about that rank record and publish like especially if you're not like the top you know the top dog every week or i guess if you are that's cool because mm. you're the top dog every week but like if you're like the fourth fifth sixth person and you're just kind of you're you know you're, you're you have to really be motivated to struggle and try to be a little bit higher ranked you know like you're not going to be necessarily rewarded every week you have to you just have to do a little better you know maybe one week you had a bad week i really want to do better next week you know in, in that recognition or when that uh, chart comes out or something like that and it it does make sense like you don't you don't want to be i guess entitled like <laughs> you don't want to have that uh oh where's my come on i did something good you know like let me uh yeah that 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 um that stretch to help athletes stay motivated mm, and i my in my athletic experience my coach was really good at that um he was an, he was a really fantastic motivator and i remember moments i didn't understand exactly what his thinking was or what he was doing at the time it just used to it used to kind of annoy me but it would motivate me to to go harder so you know at the end of a training session you know if i was seeing myself as the top dog or i was seeing myself as having done really really well you know he'd, he'd go around and give feedback he'd go around and give feedback to the guys at the end of the training and thank people for their effort and everything and you know there's there were definitely and there were a lot of times i got that feedback and got a, you know got a real pat on the back and it just you know it, was, it felt fantastic but there were i remember some clear times when he went around the circle and left me out on days when I had trained well, you know, and, and I, he knew what he was doing, but, and I sat there like, are you kidding? Are you joking? That's it. I'm going to show you. And <laughs> came back and funnily enough, performed better, performed better the next time. But, you know, on days when I was expecting the reward, feeling fully deserving of the reward and the, re- and the re- reward was not forthcoming, then the response from my nervous system was, I need to go a level above. I'm going to have to go harder so I can get that reward again. And look, if, if it was not forthcoming all the time, if there was never encouragement there, well, then, you know, perhaps that would sort of go down the line of just on some le- some low-level feeling emotionally beaten up or emotionally abused that you're just never, ever getting a pat on the back. But when you use it subtly, as you say, when you use it intermi- intermittently, it can actually be a really powerful stimulus. I, I love that. And it makes me think too about, and, and I say this because I've had this tendency, like, to be the almost over the top like make, let's make sure i encourage everybody when they you know they they did well and maybe it's one of those things of wanting to be like a nice guy too you know like that that element where i i've done it myself a lot and i've seen it in coaches where we want to we really want to win our athletes approval and so we're always trying to you know say what did they do well but just as i see and as you just described like these coaches who are masters they see it all, you know, and they, and they don't mm. need to be, you know, they don't need their athletes. I mean, they get their athletes respect, but they don't walk around like they need it. Like they need to tell them nice things all the time. And like you said, by being mm. able to not need that from the athlete and to be able to withhold that as appropriate to get an athlete motivated. I, I think that's just a mark of a really good coach. And yeah, it's just one of those things that goes beyond just, just the sets and the reps and the trading progression. It's like, how do I get that dopamine going? to really get that build a fire in that athlete to to keep that intermittent reward system going going along yeah and it's going to be it's going to be individual to it to each brain to each nervous system to each you know to each individual so um, again my coach was really good at this just to every now and then he'd kind of just almost look away you know you do something really good and look around for that response look look around for that you know that that acknowledgement and you just get nothing he'd almost <laughs> sort of just sort of look and just kind of look away you're like oh what <laughs> that's you know and if he did that all the time my my mind might take that as a you know as a negative feedback but when there was when my brain was fully expecting a reward and then all of a sudden it wasn't there well then yeah I, it, the output changed you know and essentially my my system looked to solve the problem by 
by going harder, by giving more and, and increasing the output. And yeah, that, as you say, that's that's kind of to me that's mastery in coaching and and understanding that balance. And I think it's worth it's worth playing with. I think in in everything that I do in the brain in the mind, I was just describing this to someone the other day who was asking me about about qualifications and what had I done, and I was having to say to this woman that. I can't give you any kind of context on the speed at which you're able to learn and the speed in which the speed at which things are able to change in this space when you're working with the brain, working with the mind, working with the nervous system. And I said, so I was at university for about eight years and I've been working with the brain now for about seven years. And I would say comfortably that I learned more in that first year just working with the brain than I did in all, all of my eight years at university. It's just just by by playing and just observing. So learning new things in my space, I can look at a medical paper, and I don't need to wait for a drug to be developed. I don't need to wait for a, a new machine or anything to, to to be built. We can literally just go and apply that in the brain, and you can increase your your effectiveness. You can you can garner a result just by giving that information to the brain, and it's and it's exactly the same. Scientific studies, in different studies, you can do exactly the same thing. Find a research paper, take it to the brain. Don't have to wait for any for anything to be developed, built or, you know, or approved, you can literally just give that information to the brain and you can watch it unfold. And it's exactly the same, you know, in, in coaching. If you're smart about it and kind of play without fear a little bit, you can play with these responses in your athletes. And obviously always do it with the best of intentions, always do it, you know, you're always looking for what's going to give you a positive response. You're not just playing like an evil genius. You're looking at, at the responses that you're getting and what's actually improving. But if you're actually prepared to play with some of these outputs, the, the scope for improvement is enormous. You know, like what, what I have seen change and what, I, what I've been able to understand in that amount of time that I've been working in this space is to me, it's just, it's an exponential learning curve. And so when we're saying apply that, apply that coaching now and look to work with the, the intermittent reward, Remember that it won't be a one-size-fits-all approach. It will be very individual and there'll be certain methods, there'll be certain techniques, there'll be certain ways of going about it that'll be really effective for some athletes and less effective for others. But as a coach, if you're looking to develop your own skill set, if you play with it, potentially take some notes on it, on the, on the responses that you see mm-hmm. so that you're not just going by a trial and error and, and repeating your own mistakes with your athletes you can really improve your own skill set because you're going to get a window into what's actually happening in that in that brain and as i said my own experience working in this space is that things happen really really fast and the amount that you can learn is is said it can be that exponential learning curve so definitely worth playing with my advice would be to write things down on the different strategies that you've employed and the, and then the outputs that you've actually seen and keep a little bit of a, a little bit of a journal on that for different athletes because there will be different responses from from different brains yeah, I, I think that's so important to have not just a physical, you know, quantitative training log. How much did we, how far did we run? How many miles? How much weight did we lift? But a, like a mental emotional log and different athletes and different responses. And yeah, like you said, I, or you were alluding to, like, it's not going to work the same with every athlete. I think there's some athletes, especially those who are, some athletes would take it really hard to not, to be ignored mm. a little bit, you know, versus others. Mm. It's good. It would be a different, like I've heard too, like you can yell at one athlete, you can't yell at another, like you you really have to be maybe like a Brett Bartholomew, I think when he was on this podcast was talking about being, di- being didactic to having like different personalities of yourself that you could exhibit based off of mm. uh, what the athletes were needed and things like that. So I know that rabbit hole goes really far, but that I think that journal idea of, of not just training methods, but, but how did I approach this athlete from a coaching perspective and what seemed to be the response type setup? I think that's a really valuable thing. Can I jump back a step because we started off this conversation talking about present moment awareness. Yeah. So, and what you just touched on there is really powerful. And I think for coaching, this is huge. So I, I work with a lot of parents on, on this and this is, so I'll describe, this is kind of how I, how I try and parent. And so the power of intention, the power of intentionality is, is enormous. And I, I don't know how many, I just say, I don't know how many coaches actually pay attention to this and work with it. There may be, there may be many, there may be few, I'm not sure, but, Essentially, when we set a clear, coherent intention, then that's how we're setting the mind up to function. And when we talk about the brain not liking open loops, if we set a clear, coherent intention, then the brain's going to be looking. That's like an open loop that the brain is looking at. How can I, how can I cohere myself around that? How can I shape my behaviors, my responses, my thought patterns 
around that intention because we've just set that up. So in parenting, my parental software, the parental software that I'm running as a result of my childhood experience growing up with the two parents that I had is that from a disciplinary standpoint, my mum would just get, if we'd done something wrong, and a lot of times we wouldn't even know we'd done something wrong, but my mum would just get angry and she'd be coming in and swinging and yelling and, and, and hitting. And we wouldn't even know what it was for a lot of the time, you know, and we might find out later. My dad would sit down with us and give us a really long talking to, and he, you know, it, he'd, he'd want us to know that exactly what it was that we'd done. His, his theory was strike hard, not often. And so he used to, he'd give us this long lecture and long talk to make sure we knew what we'd done wrong before we got the belt. And that's kind of, that's what I've got for my parental software, but it's not the parental software that I want to run. I'm looking for something different. Now, in those moments with my kids, when they, when they do something wrong that, that really pushes my buttons and I feel an emotional response, what wants to come out is that hardwired programming. So, and a lot of times I just, I'll find myself thinking, right, the words that I have is I want to be a more highly evolved parent, but I, I can't in this moment where there's emotions are firing, I can't see how I'm going to get that output. I can't see how that's going to happen. And so generally my approach is, right, I need to set a really clear intention. So I'll just make space for that for a moment. I'll, I'll send the child to the room for a moment and say, just go there, think about what you did. I'll be there in a minute. And then I just have to set an intention. What do I want out of this moment? Okay. I want. I want to be a more highly evolved parent. I want perfect communication. I want the child I want perfect communication so the child knows what they did and then they correct the error. And you know, and I want there to be love in this. I want the kid to get the message lovingly and learn the lesson, you know, without me yelling and screaming and the child just having a negative experience and perhaps not learning the lesson. And and, and I'm gonna say probably nine times out of ten, we'll go in and we'll have a conversation and a lot of times what happens is I will go in there. The interesting thing is I will go in there having set that intention and I'll have no idea what I'm supposed to say. I have absolutely no idea how that is supposed to unfold. But I find myself in the moment because I've set that intention for it to be a more highly evolved parent, to have perfect communication. When I realize I don't have that, I sit there and my mind realizes you just need to listen right now. You don't have the response. And so I might just sit and listen for a moment or maybe we just have silence for a moment, but then the words come the response actually comes because my subconscious is figuring it out. But consciously, I haven't really done much at all, but the, the information comes into my conscious awareness. And so it's exactly the same thing with a coach and an athlete. So you need to look at, as the coach, if you set the intention for what you want, okay, my intention in this moment is to, is to provide optimal coaching such that this athlete understands what they've done right, understands what they've done wrong, and then produces a next level output. Okay. So that would mean, you know, new, I need perfect communication. I, I, I would need to be speaking in a frequency that does that for this athlete. Now, if I've set that intention to give that athlete exactly what they need in the moment and then produce the right, the right output, then my subconscious is going, that's that open loop. My subconscious is going to be trying to figure that out in the moment. So when we talk about journaling things down and looking to try and understand what's what's worked well what hasn't worked well and understanding that if you set that clear coherent intention for what you want in coaching with your athlete every single time your mind your brain is going to be attempting to be optimizing your language your frequency it's going to be attempting to optimize your energy field which then changes it changes the energetic in interaction between you and your and your athlete and, and you can get a very, very different response. And certainly if you do that you know, over time and with a number of different athletes, you're going to find far more consistently you're getting a really, really good response. So I, I can't overstate the importance of intentionality. So rather than just turn up and think, oh, I've got some drills I want to get through, the, the intention might be what message do I need the athletes to get today or how do I – my intention is to be the best coach I can possibly be or my intention is to – have the greatest, most perfect communication that I can have with my athletes so that they understand how it is or what I'm, I'm actually teaching them in this moment so they just get it. So whatever the intention needs to be, if you set that and then you just give yourself space to actually allow that to come out because there'll be almost certainly moments when you just don't consciously understand what it is that you're supposed to say or do. But if you hang on to that intention, the, the interesting thing is that your subconscious will be working away. Again, it's subconscious, so below the conscious level of awareness. And the information will come to you. The information will come to you at different, at different moments and you'll find the result will, be very, will just be very different.
Yeah, I, I really like how you're connecting uh, parenting and coaching too, because those anecdotes <laughs> are really good for me. So, but it, it takes me back actually to the intention, even when you were talking about your table tennis and the intention of my brain pays attention and corrects effort. And, mm. and I, I think this is so important for athletes to you know, goal setting, process goal setting, or intention based, you know, what's the intention and, and having athletes be mindful of that. But how often do we set that for ourselves as coaches? You know, it's easy to give athletes goals, but how often are we actually get, giving ourselves goals and saying, how did I do? Or, or a group of coaches after a practice saying, how did we do? How, you know, I mean, I'm sure it does happen, but probably not for athlete, for every one athlete or 10 athletes given a goal, I would imagine that coaches, there's only a few coaches who are giving goals for themselves and how they go about the session and, and setting the intention for what they're trying to do. And I also, I like what you say too, like the Sometimes you don't know what the answer is going to be, but you set the intention mm. to get it and kind of let yep. the subconscious put it together for you. I, I really like that idea. Yeah. Well, you just, I mean, look, just think about it for a moment. Your conscious mind is literally 5% of your total brain processing. So if I'm going in there and I think I'm going to get the best result, only accessing 5% of what I've got upstairs, I'm kind of setting myself up not to get the best result. So if I set that clear, coherent intention and I engage the subconscious, I engage the other 95%. Well, that can be working away at solving the problem for me. And yet I think exactly what something you just said then is, is really cool, really important. When you just said that maybe a lot of coach, maybe not all coaches are setting those kinds of intentions or, or looking at themselves and looking at their own output in coaching and, and acknowledging that. I think, you know, I remember being an athlete and being given a training diary and we were looking at all these different training variables and it was great because it got us to place our attention on my relationship with my girlfriend who got my you know my, my sleeping patterns my eating my, my feeding patterns you know what, what did I done during the day you know where did I where did I throw my energy away and so I got to place my attention on all these things and I was able to refine I was able to refine my routine you know really really well but they were all what we might call you know we were told different key training variables or key key considerations in in training but they were all variables and I think if the coach begins to look at himself or herself as a training variable, well, then straight away, the coach then has to look at their own performance. Say, so, well, if I'm a training variable, well, that means I can be up or I can be down. So what I'm doing is clearly having, having an effect on, you know, on this athlete. If I turn up, I've had a stressful day, you know, and, and I demonstrate this all the time with um, strength output, but also with range of movement. If I've had a stressful day and, I'm highly sympathetically charged. So my, I'm, in, I'm in fight or flight. My sympathetic nervous system is kind of running on overdrive. The energy that I'm giving off is not only is it tightening up my system and I'm losing range of movement and I'm losing strength. That's one thing. But I'm a, as the coach, I might not see that because I'm not going out and testing that. But absolutely, as soon as I touch or as soon as I contact anybody, they're getting the exact same. The, the, the two systems are equilibrating. The, the two nervous systems are actually equilibrating, which means that my sympathetic nervous system being elevated is increasing the amount of sympathetic nervous system activity in that, in that other body. And potentially that's just not helpful for that athlete in the moment. And, and that happens on a more subtle level, even when you're not in physical contact. So if you look at yourself as a training variable, well, then it kind of means I need to keep myself in good mental and emotional shape. And again, my output is going to be far greater if I actually, if I'm setting the intention to be running my optimal coaching programs that I'm running my optimal coaching programs in my mind is one way to look at it. When I turn up for training, that's going, that's going to increase my chances of getting a better result more often than not. Yeah. I've, I've thought about that. And, um, in the sense of too, I've, I've seen myself on video coaching at times. And the thing that always kills me is like, man, I can't believe my posture was so bad. The athletes, how, you know, <laughs> the athletes must be picking up on that. And I remember the, the last time I saw a video of myself with poor posture coaching, I've, I'd like to think that I've fixed that because I was so disgusted at myself, just by, <laughs> not just myself, but like, what, what is this? How is this helping the athletes? Like you should, the way I'm presenting myself and communicating and everything like that, like needs to be, you could say like is absorbed by them. And it was, uh, I think it was Dan Path, like legendary track coach here in the States who had said like, usually a lot of times athletes mannerisms and like their their kind of i guess vibe is kind of like their coaches they take on their coaches vibe the coach is real nervous mm. and high strung the athletes might be really nervous and high strung it kind of it's almost like a mirroring effect if the coach is really calm and cool and i've heard that in parenting you know as well like the ability to just get <laughs> i have to change my energy i some ch children won't pay attention to what i say they might pay attention to 
basically how I am saying it and, and my like my emotional state. And I have to change that to talk to particular chi- uh, particular child. And so, yeah, it, it just it really does come full circle. And I think that's such an important thing for coaches to consider before we get uh, done for the day. Actually, I wanted to go back. I've been meaning to ask you and take this all the way back to the beginning, if that's okay. Just yeah. because I like to, it was such an intriguing thing. And I, I do like having, um, you know, we, we, we talk a lot of these concepts and I always like finishing with some more perhaps nuts and bolts type things. And so uh, a couple of questions that relate to the beginning. Well, the first is, oh, unless you had anything to say, Based off well, of I was going to say, can I can I jump in really quickly? Oh, I'm yeah, really sure. happy to go back and do that, but I just I, I, it's a it's a great consideration, and it's a it's it's one of those kind of mind blowing considerations is something that we talk about with the mind. So, and I'll try and break this down really quickly. So, the beliefs that you hold in your subconscious mind they're like the rules; they're like a framework of rules that create all the programs. Those programs that you run will dictate your behaviors. They'll dictate your nervous system output. They'll They'll dictate whether your brain, like my table tennis, they'll dictate whether your brain is paying attention or not. So the the beliefs that you hold are essentially the rules that all the programs are written from. Those programs are the ones that run automatically and your brain's trying to just run on autopilot all the time. So what you were just saying about the coach holding a certain posture and um, the energy that the coach is giving off and you're saying that you know certain athletes and groups of athletes mirror tend to mirror their coach's energy. So something that we talk about all the time is thought is an energy. So thought is an, is an energy and so energies uh, maintain fields. And so all of us are walking around maintaining thought fields. And so I, I have a certain set of thought fields. You'll have a certain set of thought fields and they create, they create what we call an atmosphere of belief. So my thoughts are not just contained inside my, inside my brain. Those thoughts are in, in electromagnetic fields. Those, those thoughts are creating fields and my beliefs create these greater size fields. And so what we can, we call them as like an atmosphere of belief. And so within different organizations and there's, it can be family systems, there can be coaching structures, there can be corporate structures, depending on where you are hierarchically speaking within that organization, the influence of your atmosphere of belief will be greater or less. So if that's just, if we just take a, a family system, so, you know, one of your children who's three or four, their atmosphere of belief is, is going to be less influential on you as the parent who's the head of the household than your atmosphere of belief is going to be on them. And so mm-hmm. the, you, the beliefs that you hold, because you're the authority figure, they're just going to download those beliefs. And so, and we see that all the time, you know, with, you know, generationally, the kids just having the same beliefs as their parents. And it's the same sort of thing in, um, in a large corporation. If you're the janitor, the, your atmosphere of belief, you know, whilst it may be true and it may be beautiful, it, it's nowhere near as influential as the atmosphere of belief as the CEO. And so his or her atmosphere of belief will be far more expansive and far, and far more influential. And it's exactly the same thing with a coach. So if you're the coach, because you're the authority figure, your athletes are coming to you because they trust you, because you're the expert, you're the one who knows, you're the one who's guiding them. So if, if you're there if, as the coach, if you're maintaining an atmosphere of belief, if, you know, subconsciously, or you're just trying to, or you, you know, you're, Keep, you're, you're feeling negative about a, an athlete's chances or if you're just in a lower emotional state, that affects your atmosphere of belief and that's having an influence over the people around you. So it's an interesting one when you say like you're and, and you're seeing a physical output of posture and you're seeing physical, you're seeing um, correlations between certain energies that you are aware of that different coaches maintain and then their athletes are all upbeat and maintaining a similar kind of energy. That's essentially what's happening. There's There are these different, there's, energetic fields, thought fields, atmospheres of belief that these athletes are downloading. And you think if you can be subjected to an atmosphere of belief and beliefs create programs and those programs create those outputs that you're trying to automate, so much of sport is what comes out instinctively. It's what you've trained via repetition over and over and over again that in that most intense moment of competition and under the greatest amount of pressure, that's what instinctively comes out. Well, coach has a big influence on that, not just via the instructions that they're giving, but also via what's just kind of being given off and what the athlete is, is absorbing, you know, on a, on a moment to moment basis. So that's my two cents on thought fields. Happy to get back to the, to the, 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 the final questions that you had now, if, that, if that's yeah. where we're at. Yeah, no, thanks for putting that, uh, that thought in there. Actually, that made me think as well. Um, a recent experience I had now with a coach and, and I absolutely agree though, with the coach and like the culture the coach creates, from the top down just that the energy of the session 
but I even I, I had experience once it was about two or three three years ago maybe I there was a Olympic high jumper who was in town back when I was in San Francisco and he was the silver medalist I think in the year 2000 and and we just agreed to meet up in the morning at the track and just run some 200s at the track just for fun and he was I mean I was in my mid-30s he was in his early 40s and I, it was just like a thing where I, mean, I wasn't trying to go very fast. We weren't trying to race each other. We just have getting a good workout. But like almost just being around an athlete like that. And I was a high jumper. <clears throat> being around an athlete like that, like my stride, it was almost like I was running on 25-year-old legs or 22-year-old <laughs> legs. Like my stride was so different. Everything was so fluid. Going fast was the most effortless thing. And it was funny because after that session, my glutes were sore in a really interesting way. Like my stride, everything <laughs> changed just being in the presence of this Olympian. It was so that absolutely had an effect on me. I mean, and it was one that you know, I wasn't trying to compete. It was just it it changed the way I was running, and it, it was like I was like more springy. And I just remember that was just such a cool feeling. And so, uh, yeah, what you're saying is a with the coach is also I think yeah an athlete can have effect on an effect on another athlete in that manner as well. So I I'm a big believer in that stuff. Uh, but I know, yeah, I'd, I'd love to talk about this concept uh, for, I mean, it's such a good one. Uh, but just, yeah, quickly, I did want to take it back because um, you talked about the celebration element and that solidifying and like reinforcing. Uh, would you, I mean, I've seen coaches who weave that into training sessions, like it, it, coming up to like the, like the NCAA championship or something. I've heard of some coaches who would have athletes like touch the wall and celebrate or something or and I've never actually been around a coach in person who's done that, but it, it got me thinking, or I also, in my experience in watching high jump, at least on the world level, athletes who are really good. And I would actually see this more in videos of world-class high jumpers than I would see it at like a division three track meet, but an athlete would jump a personal best or win a meet or jump a, a really good bar. And they would just light up after they land on the mat and then just jump and light up in a huge emotional display or maybe a dance. Mm -hmm. And I saw that, I see that so much more in the elite level, I feel like than the more amateur type level and so oh, i'm just curious what you have any ideas practically on i mean be it is it maybe athletes just allow yourself to express a, a joy or celebration at doing a new best or how would you practically put that into just like maybe day-to-day -day stuff training yeah it's, it's it comes down to just making it okay because i think we look at the, it's for i think for a lot of people we'll look at the elite athlete and say, well, okay, that's what the elite athlete does because they're really good. Okay. I did something that was good at my level, but it wasn't elite. So I don't feel justified or I don't feel worthy of, of, of celebrating. And so we just need to make it okay. And there are any number of ways we can go about that. Perhaps, you know, perhaps the athlete's having a stress response. So I do these different stress transformations. You just take the perception of stress away, but on what, on however you do that, you kind of need to make, like actually make it okay to, you know, to, to celebrate. So I coach my little son's soccer team, you know, who, and they're like, they're, they're all nine and 10 years old. So they're just, you know, in a 10 year old division. And, you know, we had to, we had to put some rules in about not going over the top and not celebrating in ways that are kind of, you know, going to mm -hmm. be offensive to the other team and all that sort of stuff. So celebrating within, with, within the bounds of good sportsmanship. But when they've done something good, I, I want them to really pay attention to that. And so, same thing. So when they score a goal or just when they put together a really, really good passage of play, then, you know, we've worked on a few little celebrations or I encourage them to, you know, show me your, show me your goal celebration. And so I'll make that kind of a game at training is we'll, we'll get them taking shots. We might have, we do some dribbling and some passing drills and then they've got to take a shot and they, you know, if they hit the goal, great. But then I'll, I'll, I'll put these hoops up in the corner at the top corner or the bottom corner of the goal. And if they get it through a hoop, well, then there's absolutely no excuse. You need to be celebrating. So show us your goal celebration, you know, and then, you know, and then we're kind of chastising them if they don't go right over the top and say, you know, that's not a goal celebration. Where's your best one? You know, and <laughs> you well and truly make it okay to go and celebrate. And so you're then giving them permission to actually place their own attention on a favorable output or, or a desirable output. So however you do it, I think you need to take the stress away from that moment you need to take that and again for a lot of people it does come down to self-worth like that level of feeling worthy of being able to you know, allow yourself that celebration because you know if I look at Roger Federer or Rafa Nadal or, or or Novak Djokovic well those guys celebrate but you know me playing tennis just down the road uh, you know okay I hit the best shot I've ever <laughs> hit in my life but you know it didn't look like those guys so I don't really deserve to yell and scream but you know but why not why, why yeah. can't I draw my 
my nervous system, my brain's attention to the fact that I just created my best ever output so that it does it again. You know, I, there's no reason why, you know, from a coaching standpoint, there's no reason why I shouldn't want to be able to allow that. Yeah, I, I love that. I just, I laugh because I'm just picturing like, you know, just two random people playing tennis, you know, at, at, the, <laughs> random, at the random tennis court. You don't see them with those displays. And again, it's not like the big stage, but at the same time, like you said, like we tend to think those elite athletes are just doing it because they're elite. You know, it's like, well, that's a part of being an elite athlete is, is the self, the self-worth and the, the allowing yourself to celebrate that and reinforce that. I, I agree. I, I just think it's such a cool concept. And so when I'm, um, you know, if I find myself coaching my children's teams, I'll be sure to keep that in mind. And just in general too, just allowing athletes to do that. So, so much good stuff today, Scott. I, I really, I shoot, we probably got through, well, maybe one question. So, well, next time we talk, we have a lot, to, <laughs> a lot left. I, <laughs> those are the best shows where I only get through a couple. I, I enjoy the conversational themes. No, I've really enjoyed it too, man. It's uh, very, very much appreciated. It's, it's, um, any chance we get the get the opportunity to try and expand some minds, and I just again my experience as an athlete, I benefited from some really fantastic coaching, and you know, and, and some not so fantastic coaching as well. So I really appreciate you know coaches who go out and really put their heart and soul into this stuff and into their athletes, and you know, athletes are amazing humans. But you know, I grew up in a family of athletes, and I always remember my father saying, "Look, mate, if you're going to go into coaching and training and looking after people." You know, athletes are going to demand far more of you than certainly than what they're prepared or able to even pay. And so if you're going to be a coach, you really need to be dedicated and, you know, you want to, you need to be able to just give and keep giving. And so if there's some information that we put out there today that sort of helps people expand their own repertoire and, 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 and do a slightly better job or just, you know, just kind of think outside the box a little bit, then that makes me really happy. Yeah. Well, hey, I, I really appreciate it, Scott. Thanks so much for being on. Thanks, mate. My pleasure thanks for tuning in for another show if you enjoyed it you can help us out by leaving us a rating review on itunes stitcher whatever you're listening to would definitely appreciate that we'll see you guys next week with another great guest